The great thing I was taught was learn by doing. I had to look at how I'd been selling for 30 years and realise that that was not the way to do it going forward. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss Scotland's economic growth and talk to Lorraine MacDonald, owner of Spears Gumley Property Management. And in the boardroom, Tom and Willie answer your calls and provide insight and inspiration. Get in touch by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Let's begin, Tom, by talking about the Oxford Economics Report you commissioned. It was out and reported in all media this week. What was the aim of the report and what are the key findings? So the aim of the report, Donald, was to start a debate Hopefully across Scotland, obviously I don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers, but I think if we collaborate here, Scotland's a small enough place that we can all get round the one table. Those who are interested from political parties to the trade unions, to the third sector, to the universities, to the job creators like Willie. And that's how you get better policy if we collaborate. So the point of the report was to start a national debate. And what it tells us is that Scotland's economic performance, if we tinker with economic policy, is not going to be good enough. It's not good enough for me, and it's not good enough for Scotland. And the link between a vibrant economy, people creating jobs, people paying their taxes, is that we can afford a better health service, we can afford a better education service. The civil society, which I don't think MD disagrees with, therefore, the way to do it is to have positive economic growth. And let's start a debate. You won't get a prouder Scotsman than me. This is not political. This is about the future of Scotland. So we are starting a debate. Willie, what did you make of the report? Um, I thought it was a first-class piece of work, and I actually thought it was very balanced. It pointed out some of the points where Scotland is 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 up there, um, as good as the rest. It was interesting if you exclude London. Um, I think that the whole point, I think, is 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 getting that debate started, and I think business would love to be engaged you know, with the politicians, of all the politicians, and I, I think Tom is right, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not being on here to be sycophantic, I think we're lucky that we've got somebody that cares about not just how he's doing, but how the country's doing, and I think that's how people should see this, and I hope that the politicians of all persuasions, you know, let's invite them, come on the show, let's talk about it. What I think Tom's trying to do here, and I totally endorse us, is trying to make things better. Right, and he's trying to make things better for everybody. Yeah, I mean, what I see, Donald, is I see what's happening in the world and the technology has caused the pace of change to be so quick. This thing called Moore's Law, Gordon Moore, the founder of Intel, and his law that said the computational power of the microchip would double every two years at roughly the same cost. That has compounded for 50 years and that is the one thing that's causing the pace of change in the world. 
And I don't want Scotland left behind. It's as simple as that. And the way we make better decisions is if we all get in the debate together. The report says that radical and ambitious policy changes are required if our economic performance is to be transformed. What are those policy changes you think need to change? So, um, remember, I didn't write the report and the report was quite critical about areas where the Hunter Foundation has been trying to encourage. (laughs) So, um, you know, the business birth rates, people starting businesses and the scale up of these businesses, you know these are things close to my heart and in the Hunter Foundation we've been trying to encourage this for 20 years. We've obviously not been doing a good enough job and there'll be some big news coming on this um, pretty soon. Um, So I think we've got to double down in those efforts. Um, One of the big things that they talk about, and this is a big opportunity for us, is the North Sea. And I listen to people like Ian Wood in the North Sea because Ian, Ian Wood built a global oil and gas business from nothing in the North East. So that's the people that I tend to listen to. And Ian will tell you that um, we are past peak carbon. There's maybe 20 to 30 years left in the North Sea. There's no point just cancelling the licences that are happening up there. That would just cause great job losses and we would need to import the fuel, etc. So it wouldn't help the environment any. But Ian talks about renewables, blue and green hydrogen, wind, tidal, and harnessing the brilliant um, workforce that's up there in the North Sea, harnessing the great engineering skills, harnessing the technology coming out of our universities and put Scotland up there as a world leader. That's what I'm talking about. Willie, in terms of government support and intervention, the report recommends an ambitious industrial policy. Where should that be targeted? Well, I think for me, the biggest takeaway in the whole document, and I read all 50 pages, was the failure in scale-up. And I think what we've been encouraging over the last few weeks is about networking and getting people together and trying to help. If it was for me and I was to take one thing away from this and I was to you know, go back to the government and say, look, where can we help in this? Where can we help? If this is the biggest failure that we have, how? what can we do? What can we do to help in this? And come on and we can discuss it or whatever. And I think that we have, you know, and there's many more entrepreneurs in Scotland who I'm sure would step up to the plate. But to go back to your question, I think for the government, um, I think they have to look at um, how they encourage investment, especially in startups and in scale-ups. So I think that it's mentioned about entrepreneurial investment relief. I think they should look at that. Um, we've mentioned in the past about a potential for you know, young people make it a tax advantage um, to take on younger people, maybe help with apprenticeships, we've seen at the moment. So I, I think if I was trying to give the government advice in this and, 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 and how they could take this forward, it would be to really focus in on where the biggest weakness is in the document. Tom, where do you see the next steps in taking forward the report? Yeah, well, obviously we're in an election, so I'm trying to stimulate the debate at this time. I hear plenty of things from all political parties, how they're going to spend our money, but there's not too many about how we're going to earn the money. And um, therefore, the next thing for me is to ask people like Willie, I mean, Willie's created 
the most jobs. He's the highest private sector employer in Scotland, for goodness sake. So why is the government not listening to him <laughs> about what he knows best? Um, so what I'm trying to do is to ask people who are the job creators to give Scotland the big ideas People like Willie, people like Ian Wood, etc. People who know how to create jobs. And then hopefully, hopefully, we can get in this collaboration with whoever's in government at the time. And it doesn't matter to me who's in place. Um, so that we can do this for the people of Scotland. We're trying to make it better. Yeah, I, w- I would say, just to add to that, that... Um I believe that I, I didn't know until I read the report, right, that uh, that I'm actually an exporter, right? So <laughs> a lot of exporting services, and my exports to Australia, um, Asia, and America are over a billion pound a year now, and I'd never thought about that, wow. right? But that's in the service sector when I see that that is one of the services that we claim that we are ex- exporting. But to go back to your first question, and Tom touched on it a bit, we, we have to build on our strengths. And there's no doubt in the green economy we have loads to offer, loads to offer. So I think that sitting down and saying, how can we create the things that we need going forward? I heard um, Martin Gilbert saying a few weeks ago now, when you speak to huge institutions throughout the world now, they just the first two things they want to talk about now is the you know, your environmental policy, your social policy. All the money in the world now is looking for green targets. And I think with you know tidal power, wind, everything that we have here, there is a chance. There's a, there's a chance for we've mentioned before enlightenment too. Let's put Scotland on the map in relation to being green. Deliveroo failed to deliver when it came to its flotation, with the share price falling well below initial market expectations of $8.8 billion. So Tom, was it overpriced or is it a good investment in the long term? Yeah, I think this one was wrongly priced by the banks. The banks have got to take responsibility here. They take huge fees out of it and they got it wrong. Um, there wasn't the appetite for this business at that level. The market said no, and the banks got it wrong. Really? It's interesting. You know, it's the first time when... when oh, it is quite obvious that they got the offer wrong, but it's interesting to see all the big investors squealing like pigs the following week for <laughs> once they didn't make fortunes. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, I, I think, no, but there's no doubt that technically that the offer was not, I believe that there was there was no offer to small investors. There was all sorts of stuff that was geared up that backfired. But um, it's interesting that the people who make the most money in floats were screaming about the 18 million that was to be paid to Goldman Sachs yeah. or, or whatever. So it, uh, Sachs. such such a shame. Goldman Sachs actually had to buy some of the shares to try and prop it up, but it didn't work. What a shame. Yeah. So after Deliveroo being overpriced, do you think it's the same for most of the internet-based giants? Do you think the share prices will fall, Willie? Um, yes, I do think they're overpriced and I do think there'll be an adjustment. Some, some will win, some will lose, but I think most. I think what's happened with Deliveroo and some of the stuff that's been said about Airbnb, I, I think there's a wake-up call here. Tom? I think um, you've got to look at the company specifics rather than um, just ban them all as internet companies. There are some game-changing companies. And if you'd bet against Tesla, if you'd bet against Ocado in the UK, you'd have lost an awful lot of money. 
you've got to look at the company, you've got to look at the fundamentals, um, and then I still believe there's money to be made. England will be serving pints outdoors from tomorrow, but Scotland will have to wait a further two weeks. So no alcohol can be served indoors until May 17th. Are hospitality venues being targeted unfairly? Are we easing too fast or too slow? I think, um, goodness, this is a difficult one, isn't it? If we say we're being led by the data, what is the difference in the data between the rest of the UK and Scotland. I think the government here, it, w- it would do itself a favour if it was more transparent and it explained it. They just say, well, this is what we think. And it's quite hard to criticise the government for being so cautious. But if I was in the hospitality business, I'd be saying, can you show me why the rules are different in the rest of the UK as they are in Scotland, because the data I'm reading, under every data set, the World Health Organization levels were way below them, which should allow us to open up safely. Willie? I don't think it will make much difference as in Scotland because, you know, we're not fond of a drink here, so <laughs> another two weeks won't make a difference. But um, like Tom, we should be on the one page. No, the, 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 the whole lockdown and come of it, of it, there should be one set of rules. I, I think that the data is not that different, so why, why are we having a difference in, in reopening? Now in the third of our new feature on Great Scots, we tell the story of Andrew Carnegie. Scottish-born Andrew Carnegie was an American industrialist who amassed a fortune in the steel industry. A true rags-to-riches story, Carnegie was born into modern circumstances in Dunfermline in 1835, but it would be in America that he would find his fortune. In 1848, the Carnegie family moved to the United States in search of better economic opportunities. Andrew, who had no more than just a few years of education under his belt, found employment as a bobbin boy at a cotton factory, earning precisely $1.20 per week. Extremely ambitious, Carnegie went on to work as a telegraph operator for the superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad. In 1859, Carnegie would in fact succeed his boss as superintendent, and it was whilst in this position that he made profitable investments in a variety of businesses, including coal, iron and oil companies. In 1865, Carnegie left his post with the railroad and continued his ascent in the business world. With the US railroad industry enjoying rapid growth, he expanded his railroad-related investments and founded ventures including an iron bridge building company and a telegraph firm. By his late 30s, Carnegie had become a very wealthy man indeed. In the early 1870s, Carnegie entered the steel business and over the next two decades, he became a dominant force in the industry. In 1901, he sold the Carnegie Steel Company to banker John Pierpont Morgan for $480 million, making Carnegie one of the world's richest men. After Carnegie sold his steel company, he retired from business and devoted himself full-time to philanthropy. In 1889, he penned an essay, The Gospel of Wealth, in which he stated that the rich have a moral obligation to distribute their money in ways that promote the welfare and happiness of the common man. 
Among his philanthropic activities, he funded multiple organizations dedicated to research in science, education, world peace, and other causes. He even paid the $1.1 million required for the land and construction costs of the legendary New York City concert venue, Carnegie Hall. He passed away in 1919, aged 83, leaving behind a rich legacy that both Scotland and the United States can be proud of. Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. Tom, one of your heroes? Yes, well, Willie educated us about Tommy Lipton, which I loved because I didn't really know Tommy Lipton's story. Andrew Carnegie, um, yeah, my philanthropic hero. Um, I mean, imagine being born in Dunfermline, having to leave because of abject poverty, getting on a boat, and you, you didn't actually know where you were going to land, Willie, in America. They happened to land in Pennsylvania. I mean, it just happened to land there. And then some of the stories I love about Carnegie was he, he started as a bobbin boy, but he then became a runner for the Telegraph Company. And he used to sneak a look to see what was in the Telegraph going between the rich people so that he knew information was power. <laughs> the first man to deal in insider trading. <laughs> so I would call that entrepreneurial. And um, so... I just love that. And um, what I love, he sold to J.P. Morgan in 1901, became the richest man in the world, but that wasn't what was important to him. He decided that what was important, while he was still living, to do something positive with his wealth. And it's had a huge impact on me and the, the current president of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, a wonderful man called Vatan Gregorian, is one of the trustees of the Hunter Foundation. And he's been my philanthropic mentor through this. And I was reading this morning, just trying to find wee snippets about Carnegie, because it's brilliant snippets. And one of the ones I found was that America bought the Philippines from Spain, believe it or not, and in 1898. And Carnegie was not happy. He didn't like America to be seen as being imperialist and colonial. And he offered the Philippines $20 million to stay independent. Um, it fell in deaf ears, but that's the sort of man he was. And it is said that he died of a broken heart, really, because the First World War, he tried to prevent the First World War. He was a great man of peace. And he went to Kaiser Wilhelm and begged him not to go ahead with the First World War. Offered him bribes, quite frankly. Fell in deaf ears and it was said he went to Skibo Castle and died of a broken heart. I think these stories should be taught in Scottish schools. This is inspirational stuff. And, and Tom, was he also responsible for the, the paying of the construction of the Palace of Peace? Yes, yeah. in The Hague, yeah. which was for the um, United Nations. Yes. The, the forerunner, he, he yeah. just thought these were really important principles. I, I think he set the standard for, for giving back. And I think that he wasn't comfortable with the accolades, the things that are being read about him being a multi-millionaire and the richest guy on the planet. And I think he tried really hard to get that tag taken away. And I think we mentioned some people earlier, I think that some of the modern day richest guys in the world are doing the same and Tom's doing it on his level as well here in Scotland. So <laughs> I, I think, I, I can't wait to Tom surpasses Carnegie's uh, giving to charity. <laughs> I can't wait either, Willie. <laughs> <laughs>
Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Lorraine MacDonald, owner of Spears Gumley Property Management. Don't forget, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Supporting the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Welcome back as we are joined by Lorraine MacDonald, owner of Spears Gumley. Don't forget, if you want business insight or have a general business query for Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Lorraine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You've had quite the career. You started as an office junior and you're now the sole owner of Spears Gumley Property Management. Impressive rise through the ranks. How did it all start and why did you choose property management? I actually never really chose property management, uh, if I'm honest. I originally wanted to be a PE teacher <laughs> um, and frankly didn't get the qualifications required to be a PE teacher at that time. And then I decided I wanted to be in the police, but I was too small. At that time, you had to be five foot two to be in the police, a female. Um, so no matter how hard I tried to stretch myself, there was no way I was getting above five foot two. Um, so I couldn't join the police. Um, and after two thoughts about what I was going to do, I was just desperate to get a job. So I started as an office junior in a property management company. Um, and and start, a bit like a story you were talking about earlier on, um, when I started as an office junior, information's power. And I always remember I had to do all the filing. I read all the filing before I'd done it. Very good. And any time, you know, someone was asking a question in general, it's just when you were saying something earlier on, it struck a chord with me. Um, I had the answer because I'd read the file. Um, so all of a sudden, it was, you, you get noticed and you kind of moved on pretty quickly after that. So can you chart us through your progress up the ladders to the moment where you became owner? Well, do you know, I actually worked in one property management company for about eight years um, and, and I th- I think I'd mentioned that in my bio that I used to sing. Uh, I still sing, actually. Um, so decided that factoring probably wasn't for me because it's quite a tough business, or property management uh, is a tough business, um, and decided that I was doing really well at the singing, winning lots of talent competitions, etc. And thought, I'm just going to go out and try this. So bought all the gear, my going-away present from the company, my clothes and all this, mics, you name it, were all my going-away presents. Um, and then just in my last week, I got a phone call from Spears, Panny and Adam, as it was at that time, um, to say, I hear you're leaving. Is there any chance you can join us? And um, I suppose, let's be honest, money was the, the attraction. Um, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Joined the company, became a property manager there. Um, and again, just worked my way through, just through hard work and sloggers. Property management is, um, is a difficult industry to be in, even to this day. Um, everybody just wants to you know, have a pop at their property manager. Um, and many, many years ago, um, it was just straightforward property management. Like you would look after tenement properties in common areas. Nowadays, we look after swimming pools and gyms and all sorts of things. It's a completely different game uh, these days. But there was a lot, lot of work involved in trying to change um, the persona and, and the views that people had on property management that every time you instructed a contractor, you were taking 10 or 20% of that contractor's costs, which is absolutely not the case. Never done it in my life. So we're trying to break that kind of view that people had about property management and worked really hard to do that. And I think that was recognised by 
the partners within um, Spears, Panny and Adam at that time. Um, and actually, it's only when I start, like we were starting to talk about this, um, you know, last night with some friends, that I realised actually how successful I have become because there was 15 male partners in Spears Gumley wow. um, when I was initially involved in Spears Gumley and, and then eventually it's... it's you get rid of them all. <laughs> <laughs> For want of a better expression, yeah. Um, and it's now down to me. Um, now, that, a lot of that's opportunistic as well and a lot of it's good luck. I, I, I'm never, I, I genuinely believe that, you know, you make your own luck in this world, but I also genuinely believe there was a lot of luck involved as well. Being at the right place in the right time um, and, and good... Good hard graft, working hard. What have been the biggest lessons you've learned as a business owner rather than actually working for the company and what's been your toughest challenge? The toughest challenge uh, was probably transitioning from having other people to bounce things off of to not having necessarily other like, partners involved in it. Um, although my team of directors are great um, and, I, and I do bounce a lot off of them, but in terms of the owner of the business and actually realising that I am solely responsible for 70 people's lives and jobs. So that, for me, was like a big transition. I mean, tell us, you know, the, the scale of the business. How many properties do you look after? And obviously you've said to many staff you've got. We look after um, 29,000 flats and houses throughout wow. central Scotland. Wow. 29,000? Yes. Wow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. wow. Um, throughout central Scotland, it's, um, so that can be a combination of, we can manage a development with 300 houses. We manage development in Shawns with over 500 flats. Um, so it's very varied um, and it's it's a job that I mentioned before used to be really straightforward but now not even just in terms of expectations from clients but also in terms of what we have to do now in terms of health and safety working at height asbestos you name it it's just it's, it's just everything's changed so much it's, it's unbelievable so much more complex Lorraine yeah. well, I would I would describe you as a disruptor disruptor um, because you've taken quite a staid industry and I think looking back, you're going, right, well, that's how they do it. I'm going to do it differently, mm-hmm. et cetera. But, and I always ask this question, was, was there anything in your childhood, or your upbringing, which kind of made you stand out about this entrepreneurial mind that you have? No, I can, I can say hand in heart. I, I was born and brought up in Pollock. Right. And I'm um, seven brothers and sisters. Um, and we, we didn't have a great deal of money. And there was times when it was pretty dire. Um, and I always remember, my mother was a terrible one for if you cut yourself, you're never taken to the hospital, she'd just put a poultice on it. <laughs> poultice. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, you never had, like, you never got taken to hospital for stitches or whatever the case may be. And I always remember it happening to me once, and I still have the scar on my knee to this day. But I remember sitting in the kitchen table thinking, ah, do you know, uh, this needs to get better. This needs to be, the, and, and it sounds crazy, and it sounds like no. it sounds a bit mad, no, no. but we it's kind of we. It's something I always remember at the time, thinking, Do you know, it's got to be better than this. It really has. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of defining moment, and something that I, I always remember. And, and throughout the years, and various things have happened where you just think, Nah, you know, I've just I've got to make this better. It, it's funny that you mentioned obviously it's out there that you're a bit of a singer it now comes back to me when obviously property management companies used to get called factors in the old mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. and now I remember why my mum used to shout out the window at the factor you can go and sing for your rent <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I remember when I was a kid, like the the factor was the most feared person that could ever come to your door. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was when it was all the rent collection days yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But now it's multi ownership, co ownership. 
Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's, there's, it can be rewarding. It can be rewarding. And if you can imagine a development of flats, we'd all have different agendas. Someone would rather look at the gardens and someone else would rather look at the painting and someone else would rather fix the leak in the roof. And just try to balance all of that to come to a conclusion as to what the next stage is going forward for the management of that property. So it's a very, very difficult job. No matter how hard we try, it's, it's you know, you'll never please everyone in property management. So, so, so tell us how you ended up as a sole owner. Well, do you know, it was, it was down to four partners um, eventually uh, in the business, four equity partners in the business. You know, they were getting near retirement. 2008 went, went through a really difficult time um, and um, more of these people were getting nearer the retirement age. At that time, um, the bank were, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland actually, um, and I've got a really good success story for the Royal Bank of Scotland, they really helped. And at that time, there was never a thought about potentially buying the business. But then all of a sudden, through actually someone within the bank who, who said, look, have you ever thought of doing this? Have you ever thought of just like going forward and trying to, to look at, you know, buying the guys out and I was like no jeez you're joking no I don't think that's going to happen and then it just got a bit of bravado supported by the bank um, and agreed for them they were all retiring at different stages so um, I just brought it forward and offered to buy them out um, of the business and now I'm the sole owner which well is very unusual very well very unusual yeah. and it, it seems to me on the outside it seems to be a real male-dominated industry and obviously here's a lady you know, leading, one of, leading one of the top mm-hmm. property management companies in Scotland. Is there many other women involved in the industry? Do you know, I, I can't think of anyone leading it, if, if I'm honest. Um, and you're right, it was very male-dominated. There's some good, great women out there in property management, maybe not in a position where um, they're necessarily leading it. Um, hopefully that will change in, in time. You know, it's, yeah, this is, it is very much kind of uh, male-dominated, but more and more people are coming through in the female, even through my business. I've got great people that are definitely going to come through um, in my company. One year on since the pandemic took hold, how would you sum up the impact on your business? Did it have a major impact? The only thing that really had a major impact, um, uh, property management is a good business and you're always needed and you're always having to provide a level of service. It's not as if someone can stop buying your business. So we continue um, and we continue to have to carry out repairs, do maintenance and therefore build the owners. Um, and, and the biggest problem we're going to have, I don't think, has been in the last year. It's probably going forward when the impact of people potentially losing their jobs, maybe not being able to afford their bills going forward. And we've already tooled up for that. We've got people in place to try and help our clients towards that as we're anticipating um, that we've not hit the, the difficulties yet in terms of job losses and redundancies or whatever. Um, so I think going forward, um, financially, is probably going to be the most difficult period for us. But in the past year, Balancing all the plates with staff um, has been, quite frankly, I mean, I had a tough, tough year buying out my partners. That was by far the toughest year. But, you know, we've got to look forward and move forward um, in, in a really positive manner because thankfully none of us within our business have been hit by, I mean, the people that have experienced things through COVID, you know, losing family, whatever the case may be, losing their jobs, all that kind of stuff are the people that have had the toughest time through this. We've just had to work that bit harder to get through it. And Lorraine, and the whole purpose of the Go Radio Business Show is to encourage folk in business. And um, so was there any piece of advice you you think, looking back, goodness, that was really helpful to me and that you could maybe share with the listeners this morning? Yeah. Well, do you know, at the time when there was a thought about 
only the, the other three partners in the business. Um, I remember having an honest and frank conversation with the bank, a really honest conversation with the bank. I have honest conversations with everybody, actually. Frankly, probably too honest sometimes. <laughs> I can imagine, I. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and, and put my heart in my sleeve and, and, and said to them, here's where we are, here's what I've got, how can we make this work? And not be embarrassed. Do you know, not be embarrassed by the fact that I managed to buy Spears Gumley without having a huge amount of money behind me. Right. Um, and that's the, the success story for the Royal Bank of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's that. Wear your heart on your sleeve sometimes. Just be honest Just be with honest. people. Yeah. It's a great piece of advice, yeah. And did you have to be convinced a wee bit by the bank? Were you not too sure but you wanted the, the responsibility? No, I think um, I, had, I had a great bank manager who was working with us at that time, the difficult period, and she was fantastic. And I'll always, I mean, we had a, we opened up a new Edinburgh office a few years ago and she was the star um, because she's from Edinburgh and I wanted to recognise how she'd contributed to where I was just now um, in terms of, you know, like the success of the business. Um, and I'll never forget her. She was a real catalyst for me, for giving me the confidence and making me realise a lot of people work really, really hard and don't realise what their contribution is sometimes. And then all of a sudden it takes someone like her when we were having a meeting about, the, you know, the difficult times, um, she literally at the end of my meeting said, can I give you a hug? <laughs> and I was like, you're a bank manager, you can't give me a hug. I've never had a hug for a bank manager, Willie, have you? <laughs> yeah, seriously. None that I would want one from. <laughs> yeah, she just said, can I give you a hug? She said, because I really think, you know, you're really trying hard to get through this and um, and we'll do whatever we can to help. I can't see Peter Cummings right. hugging us, will he? No, <laughs> no. no. Headbutt, maybe. Headbutt, Head probably. <laughs> Is there any particular advice you would give someone wanting to follow in your footsteps and own their own business? Um, again, very similar to what I've just said before in, in terms of, like, yeah, go for it. You know, if you, if you get the opportunity, then go for it. Um, I... I probably was a bit hesitant so I would I would say have the courage of your convictions and, and, and do it's a big step for some people but not all the time you know there's just I've, I've helped people and as these guys have probably many times more than me but I've helped people you know set up in business I've actually had a painter and decorator in my house where I've said what are you doing working for someone else you need to work for yourself and, and, and you know see you can do something in that respect and then now a guy now who's got his own painting business now that's about my level of helping people out <laughs> how many flights did you give him to look after <laughs> um, so yeah absolutely go for it but it's, it's good to have people around about you to try and get the right people around about you to help you because it's very difficult on your own you need to make sure there's a good support network I've got a great support network of friends my friends help me and have helped me in the past to get to where I've got because it's, they've just got a fantastic the people that really anytime I get a promotion I get another cross pen you know all these kind of things that people that really really invested in me uh, as my friends uh, and that's a major contributory factor to me being a successful one is you've got a good bunch of friends around about you that can tell you when you're an idiot um, and it can tell you when you're really good then that's also for me a, a bonus every time I got a promotion I had a cross colleague <laughs> <laughs> well I had many of them absolutely who should have got the job <laughs> absolutely oh thank you Lorraine brilliant and uh, good luck with the company great Fantastic. story Lorraine best of luck thank you coming up next is the board you can't afford with Hunter and Hockey if you're looking for some business insight or have a general business question for Tom and Willie, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Board 
food you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. It's the board you can't afford. If you have any questions you want read out on the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. We're going to our phone lines now, and first up is Alan McIntosh, a Senior Project Manager and Engineer. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you. You've got a question, I believe, about experienced workforce for Tom and Willie. So, on you go. Um, quite rightly, there's been a lot of focus on developing the people at the start of their careers with apprenticeships, SVQs, and support towards professional institution qualifications. However, there's a group of people in the workforce, and I kind of include myself in that, who are leaving the marketplace either by choice or by circumstance. And I wonder what the thoughts are on getting the positive experiences and knowledge of these people back into the workplace. Morning, Alan. It's Willie here. Uh, Morning. Good good question. Can you tell us a wee bit more about the position that you held? Well, yeah, I I, I worked for um, an international manufacturer. Uh, who had a site in Falkirk. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention their name. Yes, of yeah, course. you are. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a company called Carn Phoenix, which was owned by Frankie, who were a Swiss company. Um, I worked there for 15 years um, before being made redundant. Now, the, the reason for the redundancy was manufacturing had moved from Scotland to Slovakia, and it was a consolidation of several sites across Europe, which I had responsibilities for in technical terms, product terms, research and development and general process improvement. Well, to answer your question, I definitely believe that people with your skills um, should not be lost to the to the workplace. And I think that the government it would be a good idea if they had a you know a, a skills department where you could put if you go along and say, look, I'm now unemployed. Here's the sector that I worked in. Here's what my skills are. There should be a special database that here is a group of people with serious skills at the moment that are, that are not uh, an employment and we, they should be highlighted to companies like mine. Now, you know, we're not manufacturing, we're certainly not manufacturing engineering, but I'm sure that there's plenty of companies out there that wouldn't think that somebody with your experience at your age would be on the unemployment. So I definitely think more could be done to get people like yourself back into the workplaces should not be lost. Tom? Yeah, definitely. Morning, Alan. Um, Good morning. I really believe that, you know, you have got so much experience. You have learned by doing just something I really believe in. And therefore, you are an absolute gem to be able to pass on that experience to others. This peer-to-peer support and peer-to-peer learning, which I'm really, really passionate about. And therefore, it would be a criminal offence to lose people like you and your experience so there needs to be some way to be able to use your skills what do you think i, I think i think you're right I, th- I think it's a great shame i mean I, i'm not automatically equating experience with competence uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm certainly not advocating quotas or positive discrimination but i, I do feel that once People have reached a certain age or a certain level. If, if they find themselves out in the marketplace, that that they're not getting picked up, and what they are getting picked up for is perhaps not where they're adding most value. Um, so yeah, you can get a job, and I've been able to do that. But I, my personal opinion is that you know I'm not unique. I know other people who are in a similar position, and they're finding themselves 
not getting the opportunity to pass on some of the learnings that they've got. Alan, I have a, a company, Central Heating Company, that does mostly installs, and our greatest success stories have been in retraining you know, mature students, and mature for me is, is anybody that's not an apprentice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like that, and, and, and people, you know, you wouldn't believe it today, but, you know, a good central heating engineer will earn £50,000 a year. You know, so people wow. who have been in senior management jobs, it's not that you're trying to get a job as a labourer or whatever. So, you know, for me, I, I think, going back to what we said earlier, I think that it's a shame that no one, no one with the talents, the experience, the training that you've had should be lost to the workplace. Was that helpful for you, Alan? Yes, it was. Thank you. Okay, thank- Alan, well, listen, good luck with everything. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Our second caller is Michael Bergson, who owns a number of restaurants and bars. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi there, how are you doing? You're very well. What's your question for Tom and Willie? So, um, with hospitality venues being pretty much labelled as danger zones for the past year, how can the industry and government work together in order to restore some confidence in the sector and as part of that do you support Covid vaccine passports to get into the pub really morning Michael morning what about giving your places a wee plug what's the name of your places well we've got Bucks Bar we've got two of them in Glasgow and we've got another pub and diner called Thundercat I think Michael after watching you so much on TV I think you've got a whole new career ahead of you <laughs> um, I know I to, catching up with Donald Mark <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question um, I think the government has to do everything to get a hospitality industry back on its feet right um, and what I would say to you guys is that if you believe the vaccine passports are going to help you get there, then I would listen to what you had to say. If you think that it's a hindrance, you know, I, I got the, the joke, you know, text the other day that the, the, I seen the vaccine passport for getting into one of your competitors and it showed you a £10 note. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was the passport to get in. So, uh, you know, I, I think that you need all the help in the world. We need, the public, we need you know the fantastic places that we've had and, and I know your places I've known you for many years uh, and I know you'll run good places I hope Michael that when we come out of this that we never go back into it and I think that we have to once we open up we can't forget yous. you know we've got to keep an eye on how it's going we need to monitor how you're getting back on your feet and we need to take feedback from you guys in, in case the government has to make more changes to make things easier for you and the public Great. yeah morning Michael it's, it's Tom here um, I totally agree with Willie. The thing that's got to happen is the collaboration between government and people who know what they're doing. Um, I was reading through some, of, a friend of mine's got some hospitality venues and I was reading through what they've got to do so you can walk into a venue but you can't ask for a drink at the bar and you can walk past it to go to the toilet. But Oh my God, this is obviously written by someone who's never operated a hospitality venue that's for sure and 100% I don't know the answer about vaccine passports but you do Yeah. so what do you think? Well to be honest first and foremost I I think it would be unfair if you were going to just implement that on hospitality and you didn't need one to go to the shop or get on the public transport you would end up in a situation where if it was to be 100% effective you need a vaccine passport to do absolutely everything so you've got that um, question from the Census Society, but 
the, the the other thing is how you implement these things and I have had experience I was down in London when everything was open where you required to have the track and trace app downloaded to get into venues and most venues weren't really able to check everyone's they would ask you have you downloaded the app you'd say yes and then you'd go in without checking it so we've got that side as well as, as whether it would be something that would be functional and would actually work and I don't think it would work in that sense. Yeah, I agree. The, 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 is, the trying to enforce it would be a nightmare. I mean, do you get a raid with a vaccine passport, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but I, I hope, Michael, that, that the politicians are listening and, and I hope that you, know, you get opened up ASAP and, and again, I say, continue to extend the hours and cut back the restrictions. Uh, as soon as people can get back to normal, I think, the better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the vaccine yeah. is the best chance we've got of normality and a bit of common sense because you can read all these rules and regulations, as I say, written by someone who has never operated a hospitality venue and common sense is a great thing, not much of it about, but I would listen to you Michael and good luck getting open, I think there's pent up demand and I think you're going to do well. Yeah, great, thank you All the best, all the best big man, good luck Best of luck Michael Gentlemen, a great question from Robin Oddingston, he asks how do you know when the time is right to move from employment to sole trader? Is there a way of judging if your small client base is enough to take the leap and any do's or don'ts? Who wants to answer that first? <laughs> I, I think we've discussed it slightly in, in the weeks gone past, but I think that it's, it's all down to income. And when you think that your income that is, is kind of guaranteed that it's more than you're getting but being employed, then I think then it's dead easy to make that decision to jump. Yeah. Tom, we have discussed it and I did disagree with Willie so I'm still disagreeing with him I think it's a gut feel if you wait until the income's there oh well maybe maybe I maybe no um, I just think if you're entrepreneurial you'll know it in your gut go do it learn by doing what's the worst that could happen we had another listener asking <laughs> if you can only choose one is it better to try and build a business around something you're passionate about or something that you're already successful at? Willie? I think it's a business that you think will be a success. <laughs> There's no, people have had many passion about a business that was absolutely no chance of an, an idea of being successful. I think it's a wee bit of both. I think it's great if you stumble on something and you're passionate about it. But I think that people who start up businesses that get traction very quickly get passionate about them. Yeah, I, I had great passion about the indoor go-kart racing circuit in Mary Hill. I should have stuck to the trainers. <laughs> we had another email question from Ryan Kenny saying what businesses will thrive in the next couple of years and what needs to happen for Scotland to become a global powerhouse? Tom? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'd, if I knew the answer, I wouldn't be sitting here sharing it with, with Willie because he'll just steal it. Um, <laughs> but I think businesses just now, businesses that do things in a different and a better way for their customers, the disruptors, the people who say, right, the status quo is not acceptable, how are we going to do it better? And technology has allowed that to happen. If you look at Amazon, if you look at Airbnb, if you look at these big global businesses, they're doing something that customers say, yeah, 
that's better than the way it was. So something along those lines, I would say. I think it's dead simple. The companies that adapt. The companies that adapt uh, and make changes to their business because of what's happened, because the one thing we do know is things will not be the same. So, And the companies that will thrive are the companies that adapt and get it right. And I think there'll be plenty of them. You know, There'll be some losers, there'll be some winners, but people who have a core business that's successful, I think, as long as they adapt very, very quickly, I think could thrive. I also think, again, I mentioned it earlier, that the green technology businesses, I think, will have more of a chance of, of growing um, much, much faster after what we've just been through than they have been in the last 10 years. Great. Well, we've been asking for your suggestions to build on the show's success and what you would like us to talk about. The ideas are already flowing in. And don't forget, the best ones will receive a copy of the Scottish Enlightenment book by Arthur Herman, signed by Tom and Willie. We're also keen to encourage more calls, as it's great if we can talk directly to Tom and Willie, so don't be frightened. Just drop us a line. For full details on how to enter the competition to win the book and for all the details you need about today's show and information on how you can get involved and connect, visit thisisgo.co.uk Don't forget you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunter and Hockey This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey Insight, advice and guidance into the world of business